the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Victoria produces way more than half, probably two-thirds of Australia's apples, over 90% of Australia's pears, and we're hearing from growers in those industries saying they're walking away in droves or pulling out trees to a large extent. So what's going on in this fresh fruit industry, the backbone of the fruit industry in Victoria, and how do you fix it? We'll have a wide-ranging discussion too with APAL. Apple and Pear Australia Limited. They're the industry body around apples and pears in this country. They're going to talk to you about what's wrong with their industry at the moment and some of the ideas that regulators or government could do to step in and make things easier for growers. We'll also go to a dairy factory, which is uh, one of the locations for strike action beginning today for milk tanker drivers, extending tomorrow to dairy factory workers, as you've been hearing in the news or indeed on the country air in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, We had a couple of unions and farmers on the program yesterday. If you want to go back with that, maybe after the show today, you can always listen to the podcast, download Victorian Country Hour, wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, though, let's go to Rural News with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Australia's wine industry is patiently waiting for market access to its biggest market to return. A World Trade Organisation report into Australia's complaint about crippling tariffs on Australian wine going into China has been handed to both Canberra and Beijing. And as exporters wait for the outcome, they're cautiously trying to re-establish contacts. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is also expected to travel to China this year. Lee McLean from Australian Grape and Wine is also... Lee McLean from Australian Grape and Wine has also been in China, where there is hope from those in the industry that the market will reopen. We haven't had much uh, engagement uh, over the last couple of years on anything relating to wine for obvious reasons. Uh, So it was very good to get over there. The sorts of things we talked about were not necessarily uh, relating to the import duties or the trade impediments that we're seeing at the moment. Uh, But we did have some really positive conversations about uh, the market in China Nikki Palin was a major wine exporter to China, sending around 200 containers of wine to the Northeast Asian market every year. She says the wine industry is struggling after the loss of the Chinese market, and even if it returns soon, it'll take a long time for confidence to rebuild. We don't, as an industry, believe that we'll be able to, you know, immediately get back to the levels where we were. I mean, we're quite realistic that the, you know, there has been a shift in the market over there in terms of consumer preferences and just also just losing some of our market share to other international countries. Um, uh, you know, so we, we're quite realistic when it comes to um, what it will be initially. A Riverland South Australia beekeeper has received the toxicology results explaining what may have caused the sudden death of his bees. Paringa resident Rob Johnston lost thousands of his bees and he suspected they were poisoned, believing they'd been affected by fruit fly eradication spray. The State Primary Industries Department said in a statement they detected the presence of fipronil in the bee samples from Mr Johnston's hives. No other chemicals were detected in the toxicology analysis, despite testing for a wide screen of chemicals. Fipronil is a registered insecticide, but it's not used for South Australia's fruit fly eradication program, but is known to be highly toxic to bees. The South Australian Government Biosecurity Operations and Investigations team are continuing their inquiry into the bee deaths. 
And despite a challenging year with its ice cream factory, which shut down due to floods near Lismore, dairy cooperative Norco has reported a profit of $9.1 million to its members. That's up $200,000 on last year, and the cooperative also delivered a record average milk price to its suppliers of 87.08 cents per litre. Norco CEO Michael Hampson says he's pleased despite the difficult year. We obviously had to make some significant changes in our business as a result of, of the floods. Obviously, we lost the ice cream business, the two rural stores, the mill, and our head office was obviously inundated. So we've, we've had to make a, a number of changes in our business, which we've, which we've certainly done, which has driven some better results for the cooperative. But I think what's also important is there's an additional $30 million that we've paid out to our farmers in increased milk prices over the course of the last financial year versus last, which is which is really important. You know, our farmers needed those that price increases. They deserve that price increase. And it was great that, um, you know, being the cooperative in the region, we were able to drive that. Higher interest rates and plummeting livestock prices are making it tough for some producers to service their loans or expand with new investment. A recent ABARES report shows aggregate lending to the farm sector increased 9% during the 2021 to 2022 financial year on the back of increasing land prices, low interest rates and high farm incomes. But Purvis Agri-Finance Director Deb Purvis says while higher land values have increased equity for farmers, it's becoming more difficult for those looking to buy land. And she says this is a catch-22. It really has made quite a big difference to the serviceability of loans in in the recent months. Um, As you say, with commodity prices falling and interest rates rising, uh, there's a bit of a double whammy going on there. And uh, and particularly for people that have recently purchased land at quite an inflated rate um, at the moment. And uh, so it has put a bit of pressure on serviceability. Although equity seems to be in a really good space, there is still the serviceability that that needs to be covered off on and, and, yeah, those few things have really impacted that. And that wraps up Rural News. Thank you very much for that, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News for you today. Warwick along with you on the program. We will head to those Gippsland dairy factories shortly on the program. But before we get there, let's talk about what's in your fruit bowl. And if it's apple and pears, huge part of Victoria's fruit growing industry. We, yeah, as I said earlier, grow something like two thirds of the apples, 90% of the pears, and plus, 90 plus percent of Australia's pears come from this state. It has not been a good time for growers of these products. A long slog of low prices and difficult market conditions has apple and pear growers calling for supermarket reform. Recent work from New South Wales farmers showed an average apple grower returned, uh, their returns have only increased by 50 cents per kilogram in 20 years. And the industry expects as much as 10% of pear trees to have been ripped from the ground this year. So what's happening in this industry and what needs to be done? I sat down with Government Relations Manager with Apple and Pear Australia, Jeremy Griffith, on to talk about the state of his industry and what needs to happen. The reality is that, you know, this is a generational business. I mean, I don't think I've met many growers who aren't third or fourth generation. That's just the reality. You go to Tasmania, basically, they're on the first fleet. Um, the, the, the challenges that they are facing is that because if you cannot make a reasonable return on your business, 
um, there's really no opportunity for the next generation to come through. Uh, and that, that's the reality. It's very, very hard work. It's very unpredictable. What we are finding is that all the risks are being pushed down to the grow. They have to take all the risks with absolutely no on the upside. And so that's a, that's a massive challenge. And so we are seeing quite a bit of a structural readjustment, a lot of people walking off, and a lot of growers running around, you know, 72, 74-year-old growers doing all the work, wondering who the next generation is going to come through. So it's a massive challenge. And uh, particular areas affected, we, we, we heard from Orange, we've heard from Harcourt, we've heard from, from other growers um, elsewhere in Australia as well. What's the, is there a theme there? I think if you look at Orange in particular, I think you know maybe we're seeing quite a few of the kind of apple growers going to probably particularly to cherries at the moment. I think also to um, Orange is kind of a kind of a booming city, so imagine land prices might be making the commercial decisions to leave a lot easier to some extent. Um, we are seeing that, but we're also seeing that still a lot of um, uh, hectares of orchards actually being planted, and I guess that's a bit of a flag of a concern for us because managing the the volume, the consumer demand, and, and what we've seen demand-wide, the demand in Australia has been pretty consistent with both apples and pears for a long period of time, and that's that you know consumers get into a pattern they buy very consistently. Um, but we're not seeing an increase in volume type of stuff. So what what concerns us if we have too much, it's going to your mar- your prices are going to, your margins going to be even worse, and so it's going to be a, a huge challenge and a kind of bit of a bottleneck coming down. So the is, then it becomes about who has the margin to 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 face difficulties in the industry. Does this make the big get bigger in Apple? Yeah, yeah. What you, what you don't want is a race to the bottom, and, and that that's the risk at the moment. Is if if um, you have an oversupply, you've got a perishable product. And then this is the this is one of the biggest challenge in the apple and pear industry, but not just in the apple and pear, any perishable good industry uh, industry that has limited export opportunity, very, very reliant on the major retailers. Now, you need if you've got a perishable product, you need to move that product. And there's only one place you can move, and that's essentially the retailers. And if you've got an oversupply, um, that that that's a recipe for a very very spiraling down low margin industry, and so that's a huge challenge for this this sector. Three decades ago, which I realise is a long time, Apple uh, Australian apple growers exported a third of their production. It's mm-hmm. between one and two percent yeah, now. It's down to one percent. Yeah. What happened? Um, I think there's there's a couple of factors. I mean, I think the first thing is if you look at the cost of production, sixty percent of of farm gate production costs is labour. Now, labour is, you know, and, and for all good reasons, we, we pay a good wage in this country, which is great. Um, but, you know, our major competitors in the Southern Hemisphere, and that's who we are competing against, kind of the seasonality of it all, um, come from South America, Chile in particular, and, and South Africa. And, you know, their their cost structures are fundamentally different. So, and then price will win out in many of those debates. So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very big challenge. And also, too, um, time time, the domestic market can be quite good. Uh, you know, we are from a retail price. We do get good prices on occasions, uh, and on those years, we tend to say, "Oh, I'll focus on the domestic market. I'll probably not focus so much on the overseas export markets." And what we discovered clearly with exports, you need to be consistently in year in, year out. You can't just kind of come in and come out. And I think that's one thing as an industry sector, we need to be a lot more focused on making sure that we're absolutely focused on making, you know, maintaining those export markets, good and bad years. Chile and South Africa aren't going to start paying workers as much as Australian workers anytime soon though so how 
Is there a way you see your industry becoming more competitive against those those major producing nations? I think it's it's looking being very smart in where we export, making sure we've got the right market access. Uh, and I think that's that's a you know we're looking at things at Vietnam at the moment, looking at those very unique opportunities, the right seasonal opportunities, the right growing the right varieties and the rest of it. You know because there are different um, appetites or kind of consumer demands for certain type of um, apples and pears overseas. So we just got to be very smart about how we do that and very niche market type of stuff. Let's talk about the other side, Apple and Pear Australia. The yeah. pears, often the, the smaller side of, of that equation, not only in production, but in love from consumers and, and the marketing budget as well. Many growers in this part of the world, 80% of Australia's pears grown not far from where we're I sitting. I think it's close to 90. Close yeah, to 90. Oh, there you go, 90. I had one of the biggest, I literally just came from the biggest pear grower. Now you're saying we've got 95% of the pears in this in the valley. How many pears are being pulled out right now, though? Because the market there has not been good for some time. No, pears, are, yeah, look, pears are very challenging. I think there is a, there is an oversupply. Um, and we have seen, particularly in the last year or two, um, quite a few, particularly this year, this year alone, we've seen actually a pretty sizable percentage of, of the pear crop actually been removed. Do you have an idea of how great that is? Possibly 10% plus type of stuff. So, um, But remember, seasonality in, in the pear thing, you can go from one year, you can go from like 30% increase, and next year you can, like this year, hail's damage, we lost 30% of the crop of this year's production. Um, so seasonality, we can go up and down very, very quickly. So yes, we, we have reduced volume, but we have a very good season, which we're starting to look like an okay season coming through. You know, that volume might be easily replaced anyway. So, Have Australian consumers fallen out of love with the pear? Uh, I'm going to be biased, but I think that they eat really well. And I, I mentioned to you this before, is that, you know, when you go to the supermarket, um, pears are literally the only unripe product in the entire sector so you need to you could do something different with pests you need to take them home and i think one of the things we do need to do more as an industry is educate the australian public on about a how good an eating pair when you get it right is just spectacular it just is it really is good having the patience to take it back sit it on your kitchen bench for two or three four days don't eat early wait till it's right it's fantastic but educating the australian public on that extraordinarily good value i mean you know you can look you know three bucks fifty per kilogram for for pears you know you won't get much better value than that at the moment so have they fallen out of love a a little bit uh what we do find is that consumption has been consistent for last you know we look at nelson data a lot and so pretty consistent over over an extended period of time does that mean organizations like yours which which look after marketing or or, uh, growers themselves does there need to be a greater push Okay, on pairs. I'm going to pull up. We don't look after the marketing, so the, the levy goes to hoard innovation. So amount of times so I get hoard innovation. Hoard, the money goes to the government. That goes to hoard innovation, and they do the marketing. So uh, everybody thinks I do the marketing. I don't. So, does does uh, there need to be a greater push then on mar- to, to on marketing of pairs? Look, I think we need to be smarter how we educate the the public on on it. And um, the reality is, you know, you, we would love to have a massive budget to go and spend on marketing, but you know, the, the reality is, it's it's very very difficult to get a voice. And you know, in the in the the world out there at the moment is it's very very challenging. So you've got concerns in the apple and and pear industries for growers at the moment. Um, after yeah, difficult seasons with hails in key growing areas and so forth, but also not large price increases over a large period of time. What can be done either at an industry level or at a regulatory level or at a government level? What do you think are the options here for, for growers and the industry? Yeah, well, I would flag, look, this isn't just an issue for the Australian pear industry. This is for the whole horticultural industry. Any industry that is uh, a perishable product uh, is under a unique set of circumstances 
pressures. There's no question about that. The, the ability to move your product, if you don't sell your product, you lose your product. So that's an extraordinary. So, and if you don't have strong export markets as the Apple and Panel, many of the other horticultural sectors do not have established export industries. So you're very, very reliant on the major retailers. The major retailers have 65% of the market. Now, that makes it very problematic to get a reasonable price for your product because, you know, grows new cash flow. They need to move their product. You know, they don't have the luxury of sitting on it. They worry that it's going to go off and the rest of it. And they've only got two people to sell it to fundamentally. So it's a huge challenge. And I think we would like, and if you look at look at prices over the last period, um, like just say like last 12 months, yes, yes, the pair price, for, the price for pears and apples have gone up in the last 12 months. But the reality is that's because we lost 30% of the volume of pears. So supply and demand we would have expected to see a much bigger price jump just from supply and demand. We have not seen that jump in the price. And so that says to me, supply and demand isn't working properly in, in the in the market. So that's, that's a concern for us. And I think we need to have a very close look of how uh, the perishable good industry is it kind of protected or works with the government from a regulatory point of view and how it deals and interacts with, with the retailers? Um, because, you know, they're, under, they're commercially public listed companies I spend a lot of time looking at their margins. I spend a lot of time looking at their share price. I look. I spend a lot of time looking at their price to earning ratios, and on every single ticket item, you know, there's a red flags everywhere. From they have very significant market power, and there's. I think the debate has gone beyond. Well, do we think they've got market power? They have market power. Uh, they are in a very privileged position. Uh, we need to look at make sure that we preserve the Australian agricultural sector purely from a food sustainability point of view. Secondly, if we don't provide an opportunity for the next generation of growers to come through, we won't have any. Literally will not have any. The 72-year-olds literally will not be able to keep doing the farming. They're already going to about to pull up stumps as it is. That's an ACCC thing or a government thing to look into the regulation around this. Well, obviously the ACCC implements the policy. Mm-hmm. Um so it'll be the government to actually introduce the legislation. And so we would like to see a lot more powers given to the ACCC. Um, our preference would be to say, provide all the, the, the powers, significant powers up front to the ACCC, because what we're really after is, is behavioural change in, in the way that the retailers go about. Now, if the retailers are doing absolutely everything right, not a problem in the world. Fantastic. Go for it. But... If there is, what we wanted to basically say is that there are very significant fines. And when I say significant fines, I mean material impact. You know, the one thing I've worked for many public listed companies over the years, um, things that, you know, if you're going to have a material impact upon your profit, that makes shareholders very nervous. That makes senior management very nervous. And they will de-risk the business. They say, we don't want to be involved in anything like that. We can't take the risk to the business. So they'll have very, very strong policies and the culture will change. And so we'd like to, that's the thing. So we'd like to make sure that the penalties are absolutely material. And also, too, we'd like to make sure that the ACCC has the power the ability to say, you know, we want to come and see what your margins are for the last five or six years. We want to see what you've been buying at. We want to see what you've been selling at. Now, they do have those powers, but we just want to make sure they're a lot more easier to implement. And so then it, it sends a very clear message that, you know, yes, the, the retailers have a very privileged position in this country, but at the same time, you know, food security is very, very important. And we want to make sure that, that you know, if, if anything's done wrong, there are appropriate powers in place to ensure that uh, those behaviours are, are kind of addressed. And what about the growers that remain? We've heard from growers getting out, but is it a good industry, the apple and pear industry? Yeah, look, yes, I think, look, it's, it's been very, COVID has been very tough to start with. There's no question about that. Just the inflationary prices, you know, 
if you can't get a reasonable price for your product, it's and you're paying double for fuel or labour or anything. Yeah, you got fertiliser coming through. You got labour costs coming through. If you can get labour, uh, you got your petrol prices coming through. Um, and then if you can't pass those on, it, it's just very very difficult. So it starts to sap the life out of, out of the industry. You know, you might have a fantastic crop. You know what? Fantastic crops are actually pretty bad for the industry because they're going, oh, my God, my price is going to be crushed. You know, you don't want the sector where going, geez, I hope, you know, there's a floods or hailstorms in Shepherd and so I can take a bit of volume out so I can get a better price. That's not the place we want to be. That's Government Relations Manager with Apple and Pear Australia, Jeremy Griffith, talking about the state of the apple and pear industry and the reform that may be required at supermarket government or regulation level to make sure growers remain in the industry. We covered a lot of ground there too. Pears, the unpopular fruit, uh, because they're the thing on the supermarket shelf that needs time to ripen. Simon's called from Morwell actually on that fact on 1300 Triple two. G'day, Simon. Yeah, you know, was I just wanted to basically back the guy up on the pairs. I'd gone off them for decades precisely because they were concrete. And I spoke to the fruiterer at the shop, and he pointed out, because I complained about it, he pointed out, no, no, take them home for three or four days, leave them in the fruit bowl, they'll go right and they'll be excellent. And they were delicious. And I can only encourage people to get behind the pear industry um, and just take up the fact that they have to pick them unripe. If they don't, the losses in the shop are just massive as everybody picks them up and squeezes them and they get damaged in transit and all the rest of it. So uh, you fell back in love with the pair when everyone else was falling out of love with it, Simon? Oh, absolutely. Well, I remember when I was younger, and that was decades and decades ago, pears would be ripe in the shop and they were my favourite fruit. but as I say, they went to concrete and I went off them, but uh, I never regret that. <laughs> so education is basically required. The whole idea of marketing towards consumers like you to say, hey, if you buy these things, they will ripen at home and that's when you eat them. Exactly, yeah. I think a little bit more money and time needs to be spent on that and then maybe they'll, have, they'll be able to stop ripping the trees out of the ground, which and, is yeah, depressing. And, and they still taste good? Oh, mate, they were brilliant. So beyond expectation. Uh, I'm glad you called, Simon. Thanks for the call. No worries. My pleasure. Fellow fellow fan of the pair, Simon from Morwell there on 1300 977 Maybe consumers are out of love with pairs, though, and how do you change that? Maybe marketing needs to happen. Maybe education is one of those things to tell you if you take a pair home, it will go ripe in your fruit bowl. Do consumers still want that? Do you still want to wait before your fruit's ready to eat? I don't know. You can let me know. 1300 We'll move away from those pear trees and talk about, well, planting trees right now. A southwest Victorian dairy farmer says the conversion of dairy and livestock country back into forestry is bad news for his community. Thousands of hectares of farmland in the Karangamite Shire are being bought by forestry business Midway on behalf of a German fund manager. Jamie Vogels, who is also a councillor with Karangamite Shire, says the dairy sector can't afford to lose more land and lose by that production. The main concern with loss of prime dairy land, so Midway's 200 million is targeted at 800 mil plus of rain, which is uh, pretty much south of Cobden to the coast in the Shire, which is predominantly dairy farmland. Uh, so it's probably concerning that um, 
that the wood pulp is outpricing dairy to buy the land. Does it matter though whether it's it's dairy or or forestry on the land? So your big difference would be in economic uh, value to the to the shire, the local community, the wider community, and state and the whole country. Um, so with, with dairy, um, it's a lot of input goes through, a lot of money goes uh, into the economy, um, and it's it's a value added, not just milk off farm, but it's value added in the region uh, into all other products. So I would estimate just just off farm. Uh, basic farm without value adding, it'd be like fifty million loss, probably uh, greater than that. Maybe uh, hundred families that direct work on farm. Extrapolate that out into the wider community for the service providers and uh, the people that sell us equipment and other things. It's um, a lot of loss for the region. And on that point, Midway says that it, it believes that the additional contractor jobs in planting and managing and harvesting these forests will, will offset the, the job losses you're referring to. What would you say to that? Oh, it would be a ludicrous statement, I think. Um, I, I wouldn't see uh, that they're valuated with the 10,000 hectares they've already got in the shire from the last round 15 years ago. Um, some contractors turn up, I'd never really see any economic value out of it. Um, there must be some. But dairy um, has has a lot of input into the local region. The people selling, though they they are uh, willing sellers, aren't they? Yeah, that's no, all all willing sellers, and and the, the private market, uh, all the private sector does what it does. It, whoever can um, achieve the best value out of a piece of land will buy it for the, the most amount of money. Now, concerning that wood pulp would outprice uh, dairy, so that there's a bigger question to ask: is why is that? Um, and especially that they'd, they'd pull it out of uh, the southern part of the Crankenmite Shire, which is probably one of the things I think they're doing would be um, carbon offsets because an overseas reinvestment company, so they'd be probably just offsetting their using to offset their scope one, scope two carbon. Um, and and dairy in our region would be the lowest emitter of carbon per kilo um, of fat protein. Uh, if you just just an equivalent, I think for our regions, 0.8. The um, national average is 1.1. So we we produce milk 30% lower carbon emissions than than the average for the country. And I think the average for uh, world average is about two and a half. So we're not even 30% uh, carbon emissions to produce it here. So uh, if you're taking out the dairy that's um, the, the least. Uh, carbon emission per kilo butterfat equivalent, um, I think you're doing a disservice to everything. As we've discussed, there is $200 million on the table to buy land. Uh, do you think there could be more money forthcoming and that more land beyond that initial amount could be purchased? Oh, well, there's great potential for that. There's, uh, I think there's um, not only Midway, but there's pine plantation people are, are looking as well in the area. Um, so... At, at the moment, with the two hundred million, I'd say that that would roughly buy about twenty five thousand acres. That's a hell of a lot uh, of prime dairy land coming out of the Shire. That is uh, Councillor Jamie Vogel speaking there with Angus Verley in a statement. Midway says, and I quote: "Many farmers who are approaching or past retirement age." are actively seeking to sell their properties to Midway so they can be financially secure in retirement 
The expansion of the plantation estate in the Otway region will generate additional contractor jobs in plantation management and harvest and haulage. This will offset any job impacts from farmers selling their properties in the region to leave the sector or retire. The expansion of the plantation estate will make a significant contribution to Australia's net zero carbon emissions by 2050 commitment. End quote. That is the statement from Midway for you there. Ian, let us know what you think about that or about uh, if you're a Gippsland dairy farmer, are you getting your milk picked up today? I'd be interested to know that as well. Send us a text 0467 842 722. Weather's on the way too right now, though. Let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Emil Pavlich. Good afternoon, Emil. G'day, Was. Making regional news headlines. Police have set up a crime scene in Dalesford after an injured man died this morning. The man was located by a passerby with serious injuries on Bridport Street and CPR was administered, but he died at the scene. Victoria Police say the cause of the man's death is unclear and it is being treated as suspicious. Anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers. The intersection of Albert and Bridport Streets remains blocked off by police today. A community hub in Gippsland was evacuated and its surrounding streets cordoned off following a bomb threat. Police were called after a gas canister taped to a glass bottle was spotted in the front garden bed of the Churchill Community Hub on Monday morning. The area has now been deemed safe and the suspicious device has been removed for forensic examination. Police say locals did the right thing by alerting authorities. Rural Council's Victoria has today launched a new housing plan which calls on government to improve rural housing infrastructure, policy reform and targeted funding. The organisation's chief executive, Marianne Brown, says rural is not the same as regional and most of the newly announced homes to be built are regional city-centric. The organisation has found that rural Victoria needs more than 87,000 new homes by 2036. And commercial netting has been banned in Portland Bay after strong community pushback against the fishing practice on the southwest coast. A petition opposing mesh netting in the area gathered more than 7,000 signatures as local fishers rallied against a new commercial fisher operating in the area. The new rules from the Victorian Fisheries Authority has prohibited the use of mesh and trawl nets in Portland Bay along with all commercial take of prized recreational species yellowtail kingfish. Some commercial hook and line fishing remains permitted in the area. That's the latest in regional news headlines. Back to you Warwick. Thanks very much for that Emil. Emil Pavlich there with regional news headlines. A couple of your thoughts on pears. Uh, Lorraine says my husband loved pears. Uh, Another one saying pear a day keeps you regular. Just like pear juice, name withheld. Well, when you're not even putting your name to your endorsements, how will that help with the marketing? I don't know. Thank you very much for sending it through all the same. A few of you saying fruit tastes doesn't taste the same as it did 30, 40 years ago. Is that the fruit changing? And it very well may have in flavour. Or is that your taste buds changing as our access to sugar across our diets completely has increased? And I know. Maybe you can let me know how you feel about that. Plenty coming in. 0467 842 722. We'll get to more texts later. Let's talk weather right now, though, with Joe Hughes, who's a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Joe. Hi, Woz. How's your day going so far? Uh, okay. It's feeling a lot sunnier, actually, outside my window today. Maybe that's helping my news. What can you t- uh, my, my mood, I should say. What can you tell us about the weather around the state this lunchtime? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so it is a bit sunnier out there today, that's for sure, for, for most of Victoria. It's still partly cloudy around um, sort of east and west Gippsland, but uh, certainly north of the range is a beautiful sunny day out there. Um, and that's sort of after we had a fair bit of uh, rainfall in that southwesterly yesterday. Um, so we saw sort of um, 10 to 15 millimetres around east Gippsland yesterday and then gradually grading to, to less sort of the further west that, that you go um, and uh, yeah, then remaining pretty pretty dry north of the ranges for, for the most part yesterday. Um, and uh, that rainfall is, is the last for, for the next few days. So heading throughout the week, tomorrow morning, um, fairly frosty again, um, but in just about the sort of central ranges and parts of East Gippsland, otherwise a touch warmer um, tomorrow morning. Do and you mind if I ask how the frost around. went today? Uh, do, I haven't heard reports of damage and someone can get in contact if you're a grain grower and you got frost damage today, but but did it get rather cold this morning in areas of the state? Yeah, it got pretty chilly around the um, around the western parts of the state this morning and then um, also um, up in the northeast as well. So I'm um, getting down to down to around those kind of zero, zero levels and up in... Um, in Rutherglen, which is always a frost, classic frost hollow, is down to negative one there this morning. So um, sort of frosty in, in the usual sort of spots around the state this morning um, and hopefully not quite as, uh, as extensive tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, as I say, mainly about the central ranges looking pretty cold and, uh, and East Gippsland, but um, a touch warmer elsewhere. Um, and then, uh, yes, as we continue through the week, um, yeah, sort of pretty settled conditions generally and, and pretty mild. Um, temperatures are warming up a little bit um, sort of as we cruise through the week with that, um, that ridge extending over the state. Um, so getting pretty pretty warm through Thursday and Friday. So we do have some elevated fire dangers up around northwestern parts of the state sort of Friday and into the weekend. Um, but remaining dry right through until Saturday and that's when we have um, a a low-pressure system of some kind um, sort of coming over western parts of the state sort of late on Friday and then into Saturday. Um, it's one of those systems where it's, uh, the models will be disagreeing about where it's going to be and how wet it's going to be and that sort of thing. But uh, what they're currently saying is um, we'll have some scattered showers extending across um, the state but mainly remaining on and south of the ranges. So that's through the day on Saturday um, and then rainfall continuing uh sort of in that, mainly in that, that exposed area around sort of uh, Bass Coast and Yarra Ranges, that sort of area, um, and showers continuing just generally south of the ranges through Sunday and then drying out um, sort of gradually on Monday as that system moves out into the Tasman. But as I say, it's one of those ones where there's a fair amount of uncertainty with it. It could be pretty gusty about southern parts of the state, but, uh, yeah, remaining dry north of the ranges and uh, potential for a flurry or two of, um, of snow, on Sunday with, uh, with that colder air in, in behind that low-pressure system. But, uh, yeah, a little bit of uncertainty as to what exactly will happen there. So keep your eyes peeled as the, as the forecast sort of shores up in the next few days. Yeah, so not a heap really expected rainfall-wise across that weekend. Uh, yeah, not heaps. So um, in terms of amounts, um, sort of first Saturday, uh, fairly sort of minimal amounts sort of you know, maybe a millimetre or two um, near and south of the ranges and, and more in that two to six millimetre range for the, the Yarra Ranges and western south Gippsland. And then on Sunday, more like a one to five millimetre range um, on and south of the ranges and potentially five, even up to 15 millimetres are possible sort of around the southwest um, and again, the Yarra Ranges and Bass Coast. But that will depend on where that, that low pressure system ends up positioned. So it could change and jump around a little bit between now and, uh, and when we get there. And then Monday sort of easing off again, probably 
just a, a few millimetres, um, again, on and south of the ranges and, uh, yeah, 5 to 10 around the Yarra Ranges and Bass Coast. And anything warning-wise we have to keep in our minds for the next 24 hours or so, Joe? Uh, not not too much on on the cards. So we do have a frost warning for the um, for the central district, as I kind of spoke about um, broadly already. Um, and then in terms of the uh, flood warnings that we've had ongoing, the um, flooding along the Latrobe River has eased below minor now, which is excellent news. Um, and then we've just got a, um, a minor minor flooding that's happening at the moment along the the Murray near near Barham. Um, and there's potential for moderate flooding um, later this week as the water continues to move through that system. Um, and otherwise looking pretty quiet out there. Well, much appreciated. Thanks very much for the update. No worries, Wells, and you have a lovely afternoon. I shall. Uh, that is Joe there, senior Joe Hughes, I should say, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, some important information there, and you're giving me important information on the text line as well. It's not great news. We did note that there was that frost around this morning. I wanted to know how cold it got. Got this on the text. I'm doing frost assessments in wheat west of Nil as we speak. Was that? It's not good news. If you can give us an update in the coming days on how that those assessments are going, I'd be much appreciated. Thank you very much for sending that through. Let's talk the dairy strikes that are going on at the moment. So at 3 o'clock this morning, uh, tanker drivers for Saputo in Gippsland uh, have walked off the job. Uh, Tomorrow, a wider strike of factory workers across 14 sites, 1,400 or so factory workers will walk off the job for 48 hours as well. It's major action. There are concerns for the supply of dairy products through supermarket shelves and so forth. We went through... A lot of those details yesterday on the program, you can listen to the Victorian Country Hour in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts if you want to go back over that. But as the uh, as the strikes have started, we sent reporter Fiona Broom out to one of the locations today in Lean Gather to see what was happening and hear from factory workers. And, and this is what she found. I'm in Lean Gather in South Gippsland outside the Saputo Milk Factory it's a pretty classic milk processing facility. We've got steel vats and uh, big white walls on one side. And there's the older buildings, the cream brick buildings to the left. And that's where transport workers, union staff have been striking this morning. They've got a marquee set up. They've had a bit of a sausage sizzle. Uh, but they have not been blocking movement in and out of the factory. And in fact, milk tankers have continued moving in and out this morning and we understand that temporary workers have been driving those trucks. I spoke with Mem Suleiman who's from the TWU this morning and I also caught up with Derek Dent from the United Workers Union. We've been bargaining with our various employers for uh, over the course of this year and we're just chasing a a fair wage increase and uh, change to some of our working conditions. Um, We're really just trying to get a fair wage increase to combat the, the crushing cost of living. What kind of wage increase are you looking for? Uh, that's entirely up to the members. Um, I think realistic expectations is about 5% per year. Um, I don't think that's uh, anything outlandish. We're still well behind when it comes to the cost of living. Have you been made any offers as yet by Saputo? Yeah, so Saputo uh, have made bargaining very difficult. We've been bargaining with them since uh, April. Their opening offer was a 3% wage increase and they've since come up to 4% in the first year. Um, Derek, what is it like working in a, in a milk processing factory, in a dairy processing factory? Take me through a day. 
Uh, so a day for me, um, we work 12-hour shifts. All of my uh, friends and members here at Wangatha work 12-hour shifts. Uh, we manufacture the Devondale Longwife milk uh, as well as the Devondale butter. Uh, so a day for me starts at 6am, um, processing milk at various speeds and, and varieties of uh, uh, milk. Um, and it's long hard days it's often quite hot it's loud it's noisy it's um it's strenuous uh there are there are periods of downtime as well uh, don't get me wrong um but all the workers here at langatha make this job look easy but it's not it takes a long time to to get good at this job and it takes a lifetime to perfect it and some of us are still chasing that perfection the Transport Workers Union are currently striking and that strike will continue into tomorrow when your union will also be striking. Is this a coincidence that both the unions are taking action at the same time? It is actually. It's, um, it's, I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, this is the first time in about 20 years that two different unions at the same workplace here in Wayne have taken industrial action. Um, I think that speaks volumes for the current uh, climate, to be honest, yeah. If there's no outcome, if there's no result um, that is approved by the members of the union, what's next? That's a very good question. Um, what happens next, that's entirely up to the members. If, if Saputo come back to the table with a fair offer, obviously the uh, bargaining team um, will give that back to the members and they'll give it their endorsement if we think it's fair. But of course it's up to the members to decide what they think is fair. Um, the members have told the company what they want, they've told them what their expectations are, and we just want Saputo to listen. Uh, is there any likelihood that this will impact the supply of milk and butter out of this factory in Leangatha? Uh, yes, uh, there will be a hindrance to production, obviously. Um, all of our members have said, you know, Saputo is not listening. Let's take this uh, drastic step to take industrial action. It's not a decision we come to lightly. Yeah, we're, we're, we're putting... We're putting it all on the line. We've got our families to think of. Um, we don't want to, to negatively impact the supply chain, but at the end of the day, when words fail, actions have to be taken. Labour and wage costs uh, have been cited by processors in various parts of uh, food industries, but especially in the, in the dairy industry. Is pushing for a wage increase a wise thing to do at this point? I think it's necessary. I think the, the cost of living is just it's crushing us all. Um, all those uh, impacts that you spoke of when it comes down to the at the end of the day um, the processors push that directly onto the consumer you know, price of cheese in supermarkets gone through the roof that's not in my wages it's in someone's but it's not mine that's Derek Dent who's been an employee at Saputo's Lean Gatha factory for 22 years speaking there to Fiona Broom about the strike action at dairy factories and also the uh, tanker drivers in Gippsland as well, the Saputo tanker drivers. You'll hear more about that in just a moment. Got some statements from a lot of the major milk companies to read you now. None, none on tape, but uh, hopefully my reading voice is enough for you. Lactalis, one of the companies that will be caught up over the next two days in this strike action, says, and I quote, Lactalis Australia is working closely with farmers to minimise the impact on them as a byproduct of this coordinated strike action during the peak of the spring milk season. Uh, it 
uh, says it will continue to negotiate in good faith with the unions to achieve a fair and equitable outcome and believes a four-year deal it has tabled at Longwari is fair given the current industry pressures, providing certainty and security for employees. Uh, Fonterra Australia, which has a number of factories, uh, including Stanhope and Cobden and others uh, under uh, where some of this strike action will happen, says... Uh, this is a statement from their Supply Chain and Operations Director, Robert Rob Howe. Uh, we have a fair and reasonable offer on the table of a minimum 10.5% salary increase over three years, plus more leave options and greater protection for our workers. Our people covered by this agreement are paid significantly higher than the award, and we were committed to our people during COVID-19 when we provided them with pay increases of 2.5%, 2.5%, and 2.75% in 2020, 21, and 2022, respectively. Our farmers will continue milking, and we will be doing everything we can to ensure that their precious perishable milk can be collected and not wasted. End quote from them. Saputo, another company involved in this, uh, says, and I quote, SDA, which is Saputo Dairy Australia, remains committed to continuing negotiations in good faith to reach an agreement for our valued workers and our intent is to resolve outstanding items with union representatives amicably and swiftly. Uh, while SDA acknowledges the right of our workers to take industrial action, we are extremely disappointed the unions and their members have chosen stoppage activities that will directly impact hardworking dairy farmers in Victoria. We are focused on collecting and processing every litre of milk possible and we are working collaboratively with farmers and industry to ensure we have a home for suppliers' milk during the industrial action. We are also actioning contingency measures to minimise business disruptions and keeping our customers, business partners and farmer suppliers updated on any temporary impacts they may experience. End quote. I got a text here saying, we are very lucky in Tanamba to have ununionized labour actively doing their jobs and collecting our milk this morning. Obviously that coming in from a dairy farmer and actually along those lines, uh, Fiona Broom at they are uh, striking at Lingatha today with uh, factory workers did speak to the Assistant Secretary for Victoria and Tasmania for the Transport Workers Union, uh, Mem Suleiman, for an update on their strike action, which began at 3am this morning and the use of non-unionised labour by Saputo to keep the trucks rolling. This is what he had to say. It's a 48-hour industrial action. It commenced at 3 in the morning. There's over 150, you know, truck drivers. Um, these guys are loyal uh, servants to the company who have got thousands of years of experienced labour here. They're the same guys that delivered uh, during the pandemic. They are hard-working uh, truck drivers and they, they just want to protect their jobs. The tankers are still coming out this morning. What's going on there? Uh, look, we can only draw the conclusion that they've brought in um, some sub supplementary labour. I mean, that's always unfortunate for us where, in one hand, you know, we're trying to protect people's jobs, ensure that they've got a bright future, and then in the other hand, you've got uh, Saputo, who is a multinational um, company they've you know boasting about uh, multi-billion dollars of uh, revenue in 2023 alone who are you know 
not wanting to uh, pay people the f- fair remuneration they need, not wanting to give people the job security they need, but on the other hand, paying and flying people in to do the work. So that's always disappointing. What is a fair remuneration in your eyes? Uh, look, you can never put a dollar amount to someone's job, and these guys are you know, first and foremost, looking to lock away good, secure, local, regional jobs, and that's what's important to them. Um, Saputo have shut down plants. Uh, They're on a uh, chopping exercise where they're uh, looking at cost-cutting across the business. Uh, We need security for these guys. We need security for good local jobs, and the remuneration will always sort itself out. But is there a dollar amount on what you're calling for? No, there, there is no set dollar amount. Um, you know, where we take a mature approach to these type of discussions. First and foremost, we lock away people's jobs. Um, people want these jobs. They need these jobs. Local farmers need these jobs. The community needs these jobs. Uh, once the jobs are lock, locked away, people have got the security they need. The remuneration always sorts itself out. So job security being the key thing here, what is your message then to Saputo? You know, get get to the table. Uh, let's negotiate something that's fair, something that uh, gives people the security they need. Um, there's no need to declare this industrial war on your workforce. Uh, you're a big multinational. Um, you're in the top ten uh, dairy producers in the world. Um you, you, you hold the purse strings to um, locking away a good local deal here, something that uh, helps local communities. That is Mem Suleiman, who's the uh, uh, Assistant Branch uh, Secretary for Victoria and Tasmania for the Transport Workers Union, which are the union workers that are on strike now, the Saputo tanker drivers, uh, processing workers, 1,400 or so across 14 sites. Some of those sites are counted at the same location but different sort of processing sites but yeah around uh, 10 or so actual physical locations around Victoria will begin tomorrow for 48 hours as well uh, a slap in my face emoji has come in on the text line in regards I think to some of the commentary there uh, another one in regards to Fonterra's statement saying we're obviously coming from a dairy farmer saying our milk production wasn't precious back in 2016 obviously Remembering the dairy crisis there as well. So more of your texts on other things like pears, etc., all coming in as well. I'll get to those in a moment. Right now, though, on the country out, right around Victoria, we better head to markets. Couple to get through today. Let's start with the cattle markets and we'll go to Shepherd and Cattle to begin today's program. Well, market run anyway. Nicole Varley's there. Good afternoon, Nicole. Good afternoon. Well, the heavy cattle numbers increased slightly. There was a larger showing of heavy steers and bullocks with most having plenty of weight, shape and condition. There was a good spread of buyers on hand as heavy steers came back by a further 20 cents. Beef cows slipped two to seven cents. The trade cattle numbers remained similar to last sale. Quality improved as the yearling cattle were more even and fewer store cattle were yarded. However, prices came back by a further 5 to 12 cents. The best of the veal is 140 to 280 cents. Yearling steers see muscled 180 to 250, while the bee muscle portion ranged from 244 to 306. Yearling heifers 160 to 269, averaging around 210. The bulk of the steers were either in the 500, 600 or 600 kilo plus category. 
category. Grown steers, five to six hundred kilos. 182 to 240 cents to average around 221. There was some good quality C4 bullocks with plenty of weight. Prices there 190 to 255 cents. And the dairy portion 118 to 172, averaging around 138 for the D1s. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thanks very much for that, Nicole. Shout out to Nicole as well. Both uh, two of her daughters have signed on to play for Melbourne City in the A League uh, for women. Uh, recently as well in announcements there. Pretty, pretty great work from our sale yard reporters uh, family there. Let's go to Wodonga Cattle now. Leanne Dax has those figures for us. Hi, Leanne. Good afternoon. Numbers almost half with 720 cattle offered. Quality was fair along with some very good veal in the offering. Heavy export cattle in limited numbers while there were 278 cows making up the balance of numbers. Demand for trade cattle fluctuated depending on quality and their weight. Veal sold 20 cents cheaper, 150 to 283 with a single calf to $3.10. Trade steers were firm, 162 to 220. Trade heifers gained 12 cents, 143 to 195. Heavy steers were unchanged at averaging $2. Bullocks were back 12 cents, $2 to 226. Heavy heifers with shape were firm, 180 to $2.10. Cows Ignited the bidding, lifting 10 to 15 cents, 164 to 196, and lean plain types, 60 cents to $1.05. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Lucky last is the sheep and uh, lamb markets. Shiona Lamb is at Ballarat and can give us those figures there. Good afternoon. Agents drew for 14,600 lambs. Quality improved over the heavy categories most of the usual buying group attended and operated in a firm to slightly dearer market. New season lambs back to the paddock sold 28 to 92 for the lighter weights and 101 to 128 for the lambs over 18 kilos carcass weight gaining $6. Lambs to the trade 18 to 22 sold 85 to 122 to be three better. 22 to 26 kilos made 116 to 149 gaining $3 to $4 a head. The limited number of lambs over 26 kilos sold 153 to 163. The better quality, well-finished lambs averaged 520 to 570 cents a kilo carcass weight. A limited offering of old season lambs sold to four dearer for the heavy, well-presented types. And as quality dropped away, so did the bidding with secondary types to eight cheaper. Sheep numbers halved with 4,100 drawn for. The market opened softer and all mutton sold between $15 and $42 a head. Hoggets sold $30 to $70 with two agents still to sell sheep. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Shiona. That's about all the time we have for you on The Country. Some of your texts just before we go. John in Foster says, Not all employees are TWU members at Saputo. Those that aren't are working. They're mainly seasonal employees. Drivers are being paid close to $50 an hour, which is way above award. Best paid job in the transport industry. Much better than the running up the coast or highway and being away from home. Get back to work, says John in Foster. Uh, Tom in Winslow says, The way I see it, fuel companies, uh, together with electricity supplies are the main culprits in the jump of the cost of living. Someone, hopefully our highly paid politicians, need to come up with a plan to bring them to heel. Uh, more texts. Uh, one on the change in land use, particularly in Karangamite. I'm supporting the councillor who was talking, Councillor Vogels. I say midway claiming to be supporting Australian carbon extraction and then harvesting it is absolute bumpkin. Forests need to go into housing or furniture to do that. Uh, Midway have proven they wreck roads and communities, says John of Timbone, not happy with what he's hearing there. Thanks for your input. 
You're always welcome to uh, send your text to the country. I hope you do so tomorrow. That's it for us today, though. It's one o'clock.